Romans 15:8-33. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to you your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourself are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Ilricum, I have fulfilled my, the ministry of gospel of Christ, and thus I take it my ambition to praise the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I've enjoyed your company for a while, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together 
with me in your prayers to, the, to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Well, hello again, and thank you to Sam for reading the passage for us, and to Duncan for um, leading the service, and musicians for playing. I'm just going to pray for us before we come to spend some time thinking about that passage together. Let me pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you are faithful. You're faithful to your own plans and purposes for the world, and faithful to your people in the day-to-day of life. We pray now that as we think on your word together, you would move each one of us through love for you to share your priorities. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, the ambitions and the hopes that each of us have for our own lives can be shaped by lots of different factors and motivations, can't they? For example, I suspect that some, for some of us, the ambitions we have for our own lives have been shaped by our admiration of others. It isn't that uncommon, I don't think, that a young child sees a doctor or a firefighter or a police officer and admires the ways in which they help people and wants to do the same thing with their own life. As a child, I was just like that. It was my ambition to be Indiana Jones when I grew up. Uh, which is an ambition that I haven't quite realized uh, yet, and there's still time. Um, For others of us, though, our ambition is shaped by our own life experience, isn't it? A friend of mine struggled over many years with homelessness and addiction, and uh, so he determined to start a charity to try and help people in that kind of situation, which he now does in Glasgow. Uh, And for others still, our ambitions might well have been shaped by whatever makes life best for us. Like John D. Rockefeller, you may have heard of him. Some estimate that he was the wealthiest man who's ever lived. He was once reportedly interviewed about his own ambition. How much money would be enough to make you happy, he was asked. The answer, just a little bit more. Lots of different factors and motivations shape the kinds of ambitions we have for our own lives and how we'll use them. And the reason I mention that is that that idea, the shaping or the the kind of calibration of our ambitions or the aims we have for our own lives is very much the water that we find ourselves swimming in, in Romans chapter 15. In the passage we're thinking about together in Romans 15, the author, Paul, pinpoints his own ambition in life. Just notice that with me. Next slide, please, Jonathan. Thank you. Great. Verse 20, he says, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul's ambition, his aim for his own life, is quite simple. To to preach or, or to proclaim the good news about Jesus to people who haven't heard it yet. That's what shaped Paul and his life and his decisions. But the reason that that's relevant for each one of us here this morning is that that's an ambition he thinks that we should share in. 
And he thinks we should share in it, not just because it's something that he's excited about, but because it's part of something much, much bigger. It chimes with, it parallels God's eternal plans and purposes for the world. And so it's my hope that as we spend a few minutes thinking about this passage together, well, we will be helped to consider whether our own ambitions are allied and aligned with those of Paul and ultimately with God's purposes for the world. So let's think about that together under our first heading this morning. Again, next slide, please, Jonathan. Thank you. God's promise to bring about multi-nation worship, verses 7 to 13. Now, some of you might have seen the movie 1917. It came out a couple of years ago. And it tells the story of a general in the British Army during World War I who ordered two lance corporals under his own command to deliver an order to a colonel at another part of the front line. The order was to stop a huge group of men from advancing right into a trap. And so the film follows those two lance corporals as they journey across no man's land and through enemy-occupied territory, and they arrive at the colonel, spoiler alert, just in time eh, to deliver the message. Only, when they tell him that he needs to halt the advance, he refuses to listen. He's unpersuaded by their word on its own. It's only when they produce the handwritten note from the general, from that superior officer, that the colonel's convinced. Convinced that the idea to stop his men from advancing isn't just the Lance Corporal's idea, but is an order from someone in command. That it's part of a much bigger strategy and that it's therefore worth getting on board with. And in some ways, verses 7 to 13 of Romans 15 work a little bit like that handwritten note. So you've already mentioned that, that Paul tells us about his ambitions, his purposes for his own life in this passage. But it is just possible we might be tempted to think of Paul as being a bit of an outlier, as a lone wolf following his own agenda in his own way. But you see, verses 7 to 13 show us that Paul's ambition is part of a much bigger picture and that it's definitely worth getting on board with. Let's just see that together. Read with me again. Verse 8, Paul writes this. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, there's a couple of things going on there. Firstly, says Paul, Jesus came in order to fulfill promises. Promises that God had made to his people. He'd made them years and years before his own arrival. Promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob way back near the beginning of the Bible. That's the first thing to note. And secondly, Jesus came in order that, verse 9, Gentiles or or non-Israelite people or the nations might glorify God. See, what we're seeing in verses 8 and 9 is Paul setting out God's plan, a purpose for the world, a plan that involves both Israelites and fulfilling his promises made to them and the nations. 
And that plan, notice, wasn't just made up on the hoof. It was God's plan all along. That's why when you read through the rest of those verses, he then kind of scatterguns us with quotes, doesn't he? It even looks like that on the page in front of you, if you've got a paper copy of the Bible in front of you. Just read some of those verses with me. Verse 10. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his, that's God's, people. Or verse 11. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. These are quotes from throughout the Old Testament, from from 2 Samuel, from the Psalms, from Deuteronomy, from Isaiah. And in each of them, well, the idea is the same. It's the idea of God's people, Israel, worshipping alongside the nations. See, the point being made is that this bringing together of people from all over the world to worship and to follow God rightly, well, that was always part of God's plan. That's part of why he sent Jesus, to bring about multi-nation worship. And it is worth saying, I think, that that isn't just an idea that's kind of tacked on to the end of the book of Romans. If you've ever heard a talk on these chapters in the book of Romans before, that's how they're often treated. As as though Paul's just got some kind of random thoughts that he wants to get off his chest before he finishes writing, or he's got a spare bit of parchment that he feels like he might as well make use of. That isn't the case at all. Paul's bringing together threads, core ideas from throughout this letter as a whole. If you were here a few weeks ago, for example, we thought about the worldwide worship problem that dominates the book of Romans. Paul explained way back in chapter 1 that instead of people giving God the right place in the world and in our lives, well, we've worshipped stuff, created things. Each and every one of us gave creation the highest place in our lives rather than the creator. And that's a terrible thing, and it grieves the heart of God. And yet what we thought about those weeks ago and we see again today is that God's plan for the world was to bring about right worship, nations-wide right worship of him. That's always been part of his ultimate plan. And there are a number of implications of that, but a very simple one, hopefully, is that it should give us confidence confidence that the Christian hope is sure and certain. Why? Well, because God hasn't changed tack when it comes to his big plan and purposes for the world. And I wonder if you can see how it does give us confidence. I want you just to imagine, for example, that you instruct a builder to do some work for you, and that you're excited about the prospect of what they're going to build. Maybe they're building you a new home, and that you just can't wait to get into that new house. Only when you go to visit the site a couple of weeks after the work has started, well, it's a bit of a mess. There's mud everywhere. There's tools strewn across the site. And the safest looking structure on the site is the skip that they're throwing the rubbish into. And so you ask the builder, what's going on? Where's the house that we were promised that we were hoping for? Are you really up to this job? Can I trust you? And in response, the builder sits you down and shows you the plans, walks you through the timeline of what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And what he's doing as he does that is giving you confidence, confidence that this was always part of his plan, confidence that the end goal, the shiny new house, will come. 
And these verses do something similar for us, I think. See, I wonder if you've ever read through some of the Old Testament before. And perhaps it feels as though God put all of his eggs in one basket. The basket that was Israel, his special people. He really backed them to come good and to represent him well in the world and his interests. But you see, they kept messing things up. And they messed up his plans. And so God was just a a loss as to what to do. He had to go back to the drawing board and think of something else. And hence we get a book like Romans. That's a page one rewrite of the message. See, that isn't the case at all. God's promise was always to bring about nations-wide worship of himself. He was and he is committed to that happening. And the end of the Bible, in fact, tells us about God's ultimate purpose for all of humanity, where people from every tribe and tongue and nation gather together singing his praise. And just in case it escapes any one of us, we get a taste of that here today. The very fact that we are worshipping God way over here in Scotland is evidence that God's plans and purposes are ongoing. We can have confidence in him and we can have confidence in his purposes for the world. But not only that, not only do we have confidence in God and in his ultimate purposes, we can also have confidence in Paul and in his purpose. Think back for a moment to that illustration from the film 1917 a few minutes ago. It was only when the colonel knew that the order wasn't just the bright idea of a pretty junior soldier, but was actually part of a much bigger strategy that he had confidence to follow it. And when we know what God's ultimate plans and purposes are for the world, well, we can see that Paul's ambitions for his own life, they aren't just dreamt up out of nowhere. They're shaped by something, by someone much, much bigger than himself, by God's promises and plans for the world which he rules. We're going to think about that under our next heading. Next slide, please, Jonathan. Thank you. Paul's ambition to call people to multi-nation worship. Just read again with me from verse 15. On some points, Paul writes, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now just notice straight away there's a shift from focus on God and his purposes in verses 7 to 13 to a focus on Paul. And on his purpose in verse 14 and following. And just notice he uses quite interesting language to describe that that job, that purpose. I wonder if you noticed that. He says he has, verse 16, a priestly ministry. What on earth does he mean by that? Well, what were priests' job? What were they to do? In the Old Testament, they were were go-betweens, weren't they? They were go-betweens between God and his people. And one one way they would do that was by offering sacrifices to God, often animal sacrifices on people's behalf. Only a priest couldn't just offer any old sacrifice. They had to make sure that it was pure, that it was spotless, that it was acceptable before God. 
And here, Paul sees his own work as being a bit like that kind of preparation. That by telling people about Jesus, that by calling them to trust in him and in his death in their place, they were being called to being acceptable before God. That instead of appearing before God as unclean, they were being washed, made right before him. That's what Paul thought of his own work, of his own preaching about Jesus. And again, there are a couple of really important implications of that, I think. Firstly, well, it does take us to the heart of the Christian faith, to the message that each of us, left to our own devices, are not right with God. That because of our rejection of him, time and time and time again, our dishonoring of him, our disobedience towards him, that we're not acceptable in his sight. None of us are. But the wonderful news of Jesus is that by dying on a cross in our place, he exchanged our filthy clothes for his perfect ones. He made us clean, acceptable, if we've trusted in Jesus. And it is just worth reflecting for a moment on whether that's something you know to be true in your own life. Because some of us will have problems with accepting that kind of idea for a number of different reasons. Some of us won't really need much persuading at all that we aren't acceptable in God's sight. Only we've got a hard time believing that anything could make us right with him. As we think back on our own lives and the regrets we have, the mistakes we've made, the people we've hurt, God couldn't possibly accept someone like me. That might be where some of us are this morning. But conversely, others will have trouble with believing this kind of idea because we don't think we're that bad, actually. Of course, I'm not perfect, but the good stuff I've done has outweighed the bad stuff I've done in God's eyes. But can you see that to people in both of those situations, people who think there's no way God could ever accept me, and to people who think there's no way he wouldn't, Paul would say, you've missed the mark. You are, by yourself, unacceptable before God, in Paul's words. All of us have rejected him and are unclean before him. But because of Jesus, because of his death in our place, we can be made acceptable in his sight washed clean with hope of an eternity in perfect relationship with him that's the message that paul was committed to preaching and it is right at the heart of the christian faith and so let me just ask you if you've never thought about that before let me ask you to do so now if you have any questions please do speak to me or speak to another christian you know maybe the person you came with this is far far too important just to let it pass you by That's the first implication of Paul's ambition. The message he was committed to telling people speaks to each and every one of us. But there is a second implication, and it's perhaps this implication that's the main point of the passage as a whole. And it's that Paul's ambition forces us to consider our own ambitions, and particularly to consider where we get them from. See, God's promise, verses 7 to 13, was that he would bring about multi-nation right worship of God. 
And here Paul's saying that his ambition, his purpose in life is to proclaim the good news of Jesus in order to bring about, wait for it, multi-nation right worship of God. Can you see the pattern? God's plan shaping Paul's purposes. And that does prompt us to ask whether our ambitions are shaped in the same way too. And we're going to think about that under our final heading this morning. Next slide, please, Jonathan. Thank you. Our ambitions, sharing God's and Paul's heart for multi-nation worship. Now, we are nearing the end of this series in the book of Romans, which began just over a year ago at the end of August 2021. And if you've been around for at least some of that series, I wonder what you would say the impact of the book of Romans has been on you what your overall takeaways from studying Romans together has been over this time. Maybe if you've been here, you feel like you've grown in knowledge, knowledge of some of the core truths of the Christian faith. Or perhaps you feel as though you've been equipped as a Christian to serve God through studying Romans, particularly the stuff in chapters 12 and following, where we've thought about offering our whole lives to God as Christians. Those are both really super takeaways from the book. But interestingly, one of you noticed that neither of those were the main outboxes Paul had for the book. How do I know that? Well, just read with me again. Verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Can you see that Paul thought before he'd even written that this church was full of goodness, was full of knowledge already. There's lots of good stuff going on in the church in Rome. This letter isn't him reading the riot act to a church or, or making some effort to, to sort out a struggling group of Christians. So if he isn't writing to them because he wants them to get their act together, why did he write to them? Well, he gives us some indication from verse 15 and following. Verse 15, but on some points... I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. So he's reminding them of what they already know. And what we might be expecting for the rest of the letter is a summary of of what he's been reminding them of. If you're a teacher, perhaps, that's exactly what you would go about doing if you're writing a lesson plan. After covering a lot of ground, you might want to just consolidate all of that learning. But that isn't what he does. Instead, he tells them, as we've seen already, about his ambitions. And more to the point, he tells them about how they might get on board with those ambitions. Just notice that with me. Paul's going to preach the good news of Jesus in Spain, verse 24, where it hasn't been heard yet. But he isn't going as a lone ranger, he says. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. See, he wants the Christians in Rome to to, to help him, to support him on his way to Spain, to fulfill that ambition, to preach the good news about Jesus to folks who haven't heard it yet. That's one way he wants them to share in his ambition, to partner with him in his mission. But he says before he does that, he's going to drop off some money, some material help to to Christians in, in Jerusalem. But notice again, he doesn't do that as a lone wolf. Verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, 
and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. See, Paul's reminder to the church in Rome is intended to convince them to align with his ambitions, to convince them to partner with him, to strive, in his words, with him and with other Christians in taking the good news of Jesus to people who haven't heard it yet. In other words, what he's doing is shaping their ambitions to be more like his. And that does take us back to the idea we began with this morning, doesn't it? The idea of ambitions and what shapes them. Paul's ambition was to take the good news of Jesus to people who hadn't heard it before. And that was Paul's ambition because it was part of God's worldwide worship promise. And so let me just ask you a question. Has God's plan for the world, has it shaped your ambitions for your own life? Now, I don't want anyone to mishear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we all need to do what Paul did and go out as missionaries to far-flung parts of the world, although when it's raining as much as it is this morning, I guess a trip to Spain would be nice. But notice, he doesn't actually ask everyone in the church in Rome to go to Spain with him. What he does ask them is to partner with him in order that people who haven't heard about Jesus yet would hear about Jesus. And it is just worth saying that here on our doorstep in Scotland, in Aberdeen, there are lots and lots and lots of people who have not yet heard about Jesus. Do we, if we are Christians, share Paul's ambition that they would hear about Jesus? That ambition will bear itself out in our actions, won't it? By whether we speak to people about Jesus by whether we pray for each other as we tell people about Jesus, by whether we support financially the work of telling people about Jesus. And you see, the problem this will leave some of us with is that this ambition, the ambition to make Jesus known, well, it may well be at odds with some of the ambitions we might already have for our own lives. Even ambitions that don't necessarily look all that wrong in themselves. For example, if your ambition is to live a quiet life and to kind of be liked by most people, well then sticking your neck out to tell people about Jesus is going to be at odds with that, isn't it? Because not everyone wants to hear about him. But Paul wants us to see God's big plan for the world, to see where things are ultimately heading and to align ourselves with that ambition. So it cashes out at a personal level for each one of us. But it also does influence or shape our own ambitions as a church family too. I remember a pastor friend of mine once telling me that he was interviewing for his job. And he asked the interview panel how things were going in the church, how they thought things were going in the church family. And in response, the elder he asked said that things were ticking along well. His words, money-wise, people-wise... Things are treading water nicely, he said. And the reality is that a church family like Hebron, well, we could decide to make that our ambition, our objective, just to to tick along. But you see, the problem with that is that we know what God's plan and purposes are for the world, where things are ultimately heading. We can see what Paul's ambitions for his own life were, 
And so when we recognize that Scotland is in such desperate need of hearing the good news of Jesus, that Aberdeen is in such desperate need of hearing the good news of Jesus, well, for a church family like us to function in ticking along mode, in maintenance mode, it just isn't an option. And so as Christians and as a church family, well, let's increasingly align ourselves with God and with Paul with speaking the good news of Jesus to our neighbors and our friends and our colleagues, with inviting people along to hear the good news of Jesus as we gather together as Christians, not least as over the next few weeks we begin studies in Mark's gospel after we've finished Haggai on Sunday mornings. Thus I make it my ambition, says Paul, to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation But as it is written, those who've never been told of him will see, and those who've never heard will understand. That was Paul's ambition. It was shaped by, rooted in God's plans for the world. Will it be ours too, Hebron? Let's pray together to that end now. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the wonderful, wonderful good news of the Lord Jesus. That he lived the life we should have lived. Died the death that we should have died. All to rescue us from being unacceptable before you. And instead to welcome us into your family. We ask this morning that you would impress upon each of us just how wonderful that good news really is. Help us to treasure it and to treasure you as Savior, whether for the first time or to treasure you afresh. And for those of us who have trusted in you, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would please align our ambitions, shape us and mold us to share in the ambitions of Paul and ultimately to align ourselves with your plans and purposes for the world in which we live. The need is real. The need is urgent. We ask, Lord, that you would please help us to grasp that and so to go forth and tell. We ask all of this for our joy and for your glory and we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.